Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is former Utah Poet Laureate and current professor of English at Utah uh, University of Utah, Catherine Coles. She's author of two novels and several volumes of poetry. The latest, published in March by Red Hen Press, is titled Flight. Catherine Coles directs the Utah Symposium in Science and Literature. She's recipient of an Individual Writers Fellowship, a New Forms Project grant from National Endowment for the Arts. Her poetry collection, The Earth is Not Flat, from 2013, was written under the auspices of the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. She's published poetry and prose in such journals as Poetry, Paris Review, Kenyon Review, North American Review, and New Republic. The journal Image describes her work this way. Catherine Coles addresses subjects as diverse as the geology of Antarctica, eating dinner, mathematics, the decomposition of corpses, and biblical stories of creation and annunciation. Among her recurring themes is the mystery and dignity of the natural world. A second theme is encounter, her meeting between two selves across a divide. Interestingly, Catherine Coles has been working with computer scientists to create tools for visualizing sonic patterns in poetry. And we welcome in Catherine Coles now, who joins us uh, from the KUR studios in Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. I think when we talked previously in the program, was, I believe it was about uh, your trip to Antarctica and the I previous right. volume of, of poetry. Um, a lot of your your poems, I think, are informed by, by travels. You do a lot of travel. I do do a lot of traveling. I really find uh, that for my own creative process, um, being a stranger is a very useful position, and uh, it helps me to see the world in a new kind of way um, and opens up for me that space in which I can maybe say something I haven't said before. Here's a from a review by David St. John. He says, travel always focuses one's powers of observation, but Catherine Coles always brings to her work a naturalist powers of precise discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so n- a naturalist eye. Um. I suppose so. I mean, I'm not a naturalist. Uh, My parents were, I come from a family of scientists. My mother was a geologist, and I think maybe um, her ability to really look closely at the world, they were both um, really interested in nature and the outdoors and uh, in naming things, plants and animals, and observing things. And so though I'm not formally trained in naturalism, I think that... uh, Perhaps I was inducted in in informal kinds of ways. Uh, in this review from uh, or article, you were you were featured in the journal Image. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to say I, I mentioned the the quote about uh, a recurring theme is uh, the natural world. Um, let's see if I can find this here. Um, among her recurring themes is the mystery and dignity of the natural world, which throughout her work bears a beauty and significance that exists quite apart from our willingness to notice them. <laughs> do, you, do you agree with that? <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that um, when we talk about traveling or being a stranger or, or going out into the world, one of the things that I'm really after is jarring myself into noticing. Because I think very often the world around us uh, very easily becomes invisible to us. And, you know, we live uh, in the state of Utah in one of the most beautiful places in the world, but sometimes I forget to see it until I have a visitor, um, Mm. until a stranger is with me who says, oh, my gosh, look at this place. And then I say, oh, yeah, I should be looking at this place. (laughs) But because it's in front of me all the time, I become inured to it. And going out into places that are strange to me, um, helps me see the world with fresh eyes, and it even helps me come home and see my own world with fresh eyes. Yeah, I think that happens even even if you're in a spectacular setting. It may, yeah, it does. You just become so involved, I do anyway, in, in my own little petty concerns that I forget the glories of creation <laughs> that are all around me all the time. Mm. I wonder if I could have you read a, a poem from uh, from the book. Flight is the latest uh, collection. Uh, this is uh, page 19, 30 Years with These Lions. Mm. Um, this is a, a house that exists in Salt Lake City. Uh, some people who are familiar with this town will recognize it, I think. 30 Years with These Lions. I have seen them in Taipei guarding museum steps, in Kamakura temples guarding their own myth, winged and guarding time's passage at San Marco. Excavated in Istanbul's galleries, they become inscrutable the further they erode. 
Once we took our lions, literally. They stalked our caves and dogged our steps before we posed them. We knew if we lay down just what we were doing, what it meant to invite them in. I don't know why we set them in stone. Take my neighbor, her tiny bungalow. Her husband dead, she placed these lions to flank her abbreviated walkway, a gate between them, though she has no fence. Their heads, curled locks flowing European style, almost reach her eaves, as if they might protect her just by looming. In their calm, they keep confusion at bay, the local toughs, his ghost. Look at that paw, its delicate lift, claws retracted for the long moment. Ninety last summer. Sharp, still ready, she moves off her porch to draw me through the gate. That's 30 Years with These Lions, uh, the poet is uh, Catherine Coles. That's from her uh, latest collection titled Flight. It was interesting to me, not only the portrait of, of this woman, um, but that you had seen these lions at various places, and, and I guess the, the travel, and you come back home, and and, and you and you notice this, that you see it in a different way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, I've been seeing those lions. I don't know for how many decades, um, but the poem actually started. It started, um, I think, in Berlin um, when I was walking by an old building and uh, saw lions um, flanking the front doors. And they caused me to remember um, this specific Salt Lake City incident, incidents of lions. And I started uh, in my travels then to see the lions where, wherever I went. And I thought, this is a woman who's simply um, enacting an impulse that's, that has been enacted all over the world and through time. We talked just a few minutes ago about noticing, right, and mm. seeing things afresh. And mm-hmm. it, it, I'm wondering that probably many roles of poetry and a poet is 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 that one of the top ones? Yeah, that's that's what one is trying to do. Um, if you're not doing that, then you're just writing some poem that you've already written. Uh, certainly, this does happen to us all the time that we <laughs> that we're writing some poem that that we've already written. But the goal is to write something that we haven't written before. And, and for me, at least, that requires that I see something I haven't seen before or that I see it in a way I haven't seen it before. You said earlier that uh, you know, you'd become inured to the beauty around you and you know, living in, in, in Utah, and that surprised me. Maybe it shouldn't <laughs> have, uh, but I, I guess I have this stereotype of a poet, <laughs> Catherine Coles, going around being sensitive all the time to, to the world around her. Yeah, my my husband and I, when we first got married, he's uh, a scientist, and um, his friends would say, oh, that must be so wonderful to be (laughs) married to a poet. Does she recite poems to you at the breakfast table? And he said, well, she really doesn't speak until about 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Um, You know, um, no, we're we're not uh, any more um, constantly sensitive, I think, than, than anyone else. And in some ways, maybe... Maybe less so because we're attentive not only to the external world, but also to that constant rumbling of the inner voice. And so um, we can appear to be and actually be really distracted by our inner lives um, in a way that can be detrimental to our outer lives uh, and even to our relationships. You mentioned your your husband is a scientist. You've... uh... You've done a lot of work, you know, thinking about the interaction between science and the arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but first of all, more a more prosaic question: what What's it like living with a scientist? Um, it's really wonderful living with a scientist, partly because I I can ask him questions about the way the world works, and sometimes I'm really happy with his answers, and sometimes I'm I'm a little disappointed. Early in our marriage, I had written uh, a poem relying on. Um, uh, astrophysics, part of particle physics, and his training is in physics. And so I was asking him about the behavior, I think it was of, science, of higher dimensions. And um, 
I wasn't happy with his response because I'd already written the poem as if higher dimensions operated in one way, and he told me that they operated in a different way. And uh, so I had to try to think about how I was going to get out of this conundrum in, in the poem. Yeah. <laughs> and you, as we go along, um, a little later in the program, I want to talk about your, your, your work with... Uh... Um, work with science, computer scientists uh, mm-hmm. specifically, very interesting, uh, and uh, the, the flow of poetry. Um, let me have you read uh, another poem. Let me find this, first of all. Um, it is, I think it's titled uh, Helsinki. Um, oh, Love Note, hold Lo- on. Love Note, yes. Yeah, let me see if I can, uh, if I can pull that up yeah. in the... Um, if you come up with the page number before I do, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't. Uh, no, I, I, I moved uh, my page here, and I, there it I is, lost 29. my. There Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, um, love note. This is actually uh, a few of your listeners might be interested to know that this is two Shakespearean sonnets linked together by a single parenthetical line on the. The first one is upside down, so it begins with the couplet, and then the second one is is right side up. Love Note, Helsinki, December. So far north, noon slips its light angling under the clouds, a slight to draw city and harbor out of themselves into a fragile wash of gray and mauve ten wings beat at, rasping the air. So five swans ruffle the water, young, near-grown, still mottled, the pair stark, too bright to look at. December. The sun, hardly risen, falls. My hand lies with his in his dark pocket where I will slip this note for him to find. You, it says, you. I find in him the world I ride, poised, so gently turning, I can't feel it shift around its fulcrum any more than I feel my mind move me toward the light I'm given. Today's glance, muted, here unbearably brief, scorches the southern hemisphere, burns itself out in the profligate orchid's ruffled throat, on the nectar bat's four-inch tongue, furred, its anchor buried so deep in its sternum, it eats its heart out among the flowers. Or what on earth, in Madagascar's moth, iridescent, light-footing a feathered wing, rolling out its harpoon proboscis, barbing the eyelid gently, not to wake the robin. So I'm fallen, hooked, into such passion, sipping and sipping a mineral dream of tears that in slaking reignites my thirst." Beautiful. That's uh, Love Note. That's uh, Catherine Coles from her latest collection, Flight. Love the evocation of the of the far north. There's there's a poem just previous to that called So Far North mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, it's it's a love poem, right? But mm-hmm. it's but it's also there are themes of uh, I guess the tenuousness of, of connection. Yeah, um, and I guess of imagination of being. And back to this question of whether you're sensitive to what's in front of you, of being in one place um, and looking and looking and then suddenly finding yourself transported to or imagining a place where that is not the place where you are. And, of course, if you're doing that, you're you're not seeing what's in front of you. You're not necessarily sensitive to what's in front of you. So that, that theme of... Um, of transport, of imagination, of estrangement taking you somewhere. There's, there's the line of the, the, the mind doesn't notice itself working. I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing it badly there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, mind and brain, body and, uh, body and, and uh, you know, and, and mind as well. Yeah, the mystery of the embodied mind is, I think, um, increasingly a preoccupation, uh, perhaps as I come closer to having neither one of those <laughs> um, anymore as I, as I get older. And um, it's such a, we experience it as a kind of miracle, don't we? Our sense of identity, our sense of self, we experience ourselves as if we're two things, a body and a mind, even though 
uh, neuroscience is increasingly telling us that that the mind is completely embodied um, and completely arises from the senses. And, you know, this is just one of those um, mysteries that is endlessly fascinating to me. Let's take a break when we come back more with Catherine Coles, uh, who is former Utah Poet Laureate. She's professor of English at University of Utah and is uh, joining us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. Uh, she's author of two novels and several volumes of poetry. The latest was published just last month by Red Hand Press. It's called Flight. We'll hear more poems, talk more about uh, the uh, poetry, and uh, get into talking about a very interesting uh, project Catherine Coles is uh, involved with. She's been working with computer scientists to create tools for visualizing sonic patterns in poetry. More following the break. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Talk to your parents about their driving abilities. Anxiety producing? Absolutely. Ask yourself five questions. Can they find their way home on a familiar road? Have they driven without fender benders, tickets, or scrapes on their car? When you ride with them, do they react appropriately? Are there medical issues that impact strength or cognition? Would you allow young children to ride with them? Be prepared with driving alternatives. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association. Funding student scholarships at USU with Aggie license plates. More information at alumni.usu.edu. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Very pleased to have with me for the hour former Utah Poet Laureate and current professor of English at Utah, University of Utah, uh, Catherine Coles. She's author of uh, several volumes of poetry along with two novels. The latest volume of poetry is Flight. And uh, her themes include the mystery and dignity of the nat- natural world, also encounter, meeting of two selves across a divide. And she's written as uh, subjects as diverse as geology of Antarctica, eating dinner, mathematics, decomposition of corpses, biblical stories of creation and enunciation. And uh, we'll talk a little later in the program about her interesting project, working with computer scientists to create tools for visualizing sonic patterns in poetry. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495. Or you can uh, shoot an email to me at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Catherine Coles, I'd like to return to travel, and mm-hmm. I, I liked very much your, uh, your poem about Pompeii. I wonder if you could read that uh, yeah. to us. At Pompeii, it's called page 21. Great. Here it is. At Pompeii. Thunder gathers. Off-season, the place almost empty, but for the guide who knows too much for his little clutch of tourists and me. As usual, I don't want to listen, except when that bird sings. And that one. I go in every little room until I'm left behind. What have I heard about wind's fickleness? This wind could be blowing from the farthest reaches of sky. It's so persistent. A pair of lizards flickers by, brilliant green, one chasing, then the other. From everywhere I see the mountain in its shift of clouds. Roads intact, another room. Someone knows every rock when they all come down. Where they fall, they look like any graveyard, so I don't know the graveyard when I see it, also ruined. Those lizards, was it love or play? In this dark corner, a painted bird glows and glows. Crimson stroke, blue feather, tail spirited open, that singing. All day I'm living on the skins of my eyes. Inside my head, a voice takes hold. That's Catherine Coles. This is from a poem called At Pompeii, from her latest collection, titled Flight. 
a very powerful uh, place in which to set a poem at Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Pompeii, of course, is a ruin, mm-hmm. ancient ruin. But, you know, you have life there. You have lizards scampering yeah. about. It's it's an interesting place because one goes, I, I think, or at least, you know, I went to see the famous, you know, painted walls and frescoes. Um, and also, t- I guess, to experience the desolation of the the loss of, of human life, which is quite profound there, um, famously profound. All human life was... And all life presumably was completely eradicated in you know a matter of of moments, practically certainly minutes. And um, yet, going there, uh, one feels not only that absence, but also becomes slowly aware of um, the restoration of presence in the place. Then there's the the the, the more prosaic experience of I guess being a tourist being a, <laughs> and you and and I think a lot of us have experienced this the tour guide is is <coughs> expounding his or her knowledge and you say mm-hmm. as usual I don't want to listen except when that bird sings right um and and in fact the tour guide um in this case uh, and also there's an overheard tour guide in the next poem which is the ruins down the road uh, Herculaneum but um I don't actually really use tour guides unless I'm required to. Both of these tour guides are are overheard um, by somebody who's just trying to find a little bit of solitude. But of course, in these profound places, there is no solitude. Um, There are little clutches of tourists everywhere. And so one can't really pretend to be um, different or alone or that that poet, um, you know, wandering around being sensitive in solitary splendor um, to the universe. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, um, one does learn something that one wanted to know, even from the tour guide. Uh, But really, um, again, what I'm looking for is that experience of the encounter um, and that awareness of some sort of presence beyond my own presence in the place. Have you always traveled? Um, you know, when I when I was a child, most of my travel was within the United States and um, with my parents uh, who were outdoors people. And so we did a lot of hiking, climbing, river running, and then, uh, you know, road trips, long car trips to visit family uh, in the Midwest and in the East. I didn't really... Um, do a lot of travel on my own until I was in graduate school. I knocked around the Greek islands with a backpack full of um, books by Homer and Sappho that I had to read for my PhD exams. <laughs> uh, take the book of Sappho to, to Greece. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I guess that's a kind of a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so, leaving aside Antarctica, I want to talk about that. What's the most exotic place that you've you've been? Um, probably uh, Indonesia. I traveled uh, alone for a while in Indonesia while I was working on uh, a book I hope is finally finished about my grandparents who lived there for a little while. Um, and in pursuing the same book, I also uh, went up the Amazon and uh, traveled to Cuba, which now uh, is open or opening to everybody, but at the time um, was not so open. Can we talk about that a little bit parenthetically? Your, sure. I read a paragraph that, that, that you wrote in this uh, issue of Image that I've been mm-hmm. referencing. Sounds like your grandparents fascinating people, fascinating history. <laughs> yeah, um, they. My grandfather uh, was an ex- a geologist. Uh, it was kind of the family industry geology, and he um, became an explorer for Standard Oil, and eventually became the chief geologist and head of exploration. And uh, he took my grandmother um, all over the world. They lived in Indonesia and um, Cuba and uh, Costa Rica. Uh, he would be out in the uh, jungle macheting his way uh, through the underbrush brush with leeches clinging to his body, and she would be in the colonial cities having flirtations and even affairs with um, diplomats and early pilots and people like that. Was there a, a, I think there's a journal, is there? Um, Yes, uh, many, many journals by both of them and also thousands of pages of letters. So that's, 
apart from, even apart from the travel, that's quite the adventure. It was quite the adventure, and it took me, uh, as I said, I hope the book is finished, but I finished it several times before and then discovered that it's not finished. <laughs> um, it took me about 15 years, um, mm. first of all, to get everything down. At one point, it was 2,000 pages long, and then to... Um, and then to cut it down to a manageable length. Mm-hmm. Now you say it several times you've thought it was done. What? How do you know? Um, I, I'm not sure you really know for sure. Um, Auden said about poems that they're never finished, merely abandoned. And uh, maybe it was in some way done every time I abandoned it. But I think that um, that for me, the, f- the very final act was the act of streamlining, uh, which also, I think, required me to give it a, something like a through line uh, and to really focus it because their lives were so interesting that at first I wanted to put everything in. And um, I didn't want to necessarily have to be responsible to some arc or shape, but finally, in order to make it a book, that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. It's just from this paragraph I've been reading or uh, I am reading right now. Um, it, it's a poignant story, especially with your grandmother. Your they they both started out as geologists, right? Mm-hmm. But but I guess because of the times, mm-hmm. your grandfather uh, was able to pursue a career, and your grandmother wasn't. Yeah, I think when they got married, um, they both fantasized that they would be in the field together. And um, I think he might have been more aware of the extent to which that was a fantasy than she was. I think she really believed that that was going to happen, but it wasn't a time in which uh, the company was going to agree that that was a viable (laughs) uh, thing for her to do. And, you know, it is true that the physical hardships of being out in the field for those lengths of time were profound. And he risked his life physically over and over again. Um, He was, he encountered uh, dangerous snakes. He had to cross rivers in flash floods. He encountered drought and thirst. And, um, a company was not going to tolerate that those sorts of hardships being uh, enacted on the female body, even if the female body was perfectly willing. Hmm. Uh, what do you What do you take from that uh, on a personal level? Uh, learning hmm. these things about your grandparents. Um, well, first of all, uh, I understand that I am a tragic falling off from a more heroic <laughs> age um, than this one. Um, but I also, I, I think that that reading those materials and coming to understand her a little bit better um, and also coming to understand the situation in which my mother grew up um, and I also underst- came to understand my great-grandmother a little bit better, and I one thing that I realized is that I've come from a long line of women who were quite brilliant and in some way or another were thwarted by the world in which they lived. And my mother um, was able to under, to overcome the thwarting of that world in a way that her predecessors were not able to. But um, I really learned something about uh, the kind of character that I have and how I needed to if I possibly could maximize my own chances for happiness by maximizing my scope for action and scope for movement in the world. If you just joined us, we're talking with Catherine Coles, who's professor of English at University of Utah. She's a former Utah poet laureate. Her latest collection of poems is titled Flight. Um, so I want to go to Antarctica. We, we talked a bit about this. It's it's fascinating. I guess uh, had you wanted to go before? Was that an ambition of yours? It was, you know, one of those little fantasies that I had. And as soon as I heard that there was actually an NSF program that would send people down there, I immediately knew that this was something that I was going to try to do. Now, this was under the National Science Foundation, which, mm-hmm. which seems doesn't seem to quite fit. Well, uh, my husband, the scientist, claims that I'm the only person he knows who's one for one in terms of grant <laughs> proposals with the National Science <laughs> Foundation, or 100%. Um, but uh, no, you wouldn't ha- necessarily have thought that, that uh, I would be applying to the National Science Foundation for anything. And uh, it was a little bit of a daunting task because 
you have to persuade, as an artist, you have to persuade not only the artists on the panel, but the scientists, and they make up the majority of the panel. So you have to um, compel them to believe that what you're doing will be worthwhile for the National Science Foundation to fund. And what were you doing? Uh, I was down there writing poems, and probably if I'd been perfectly honest, uh, my proposal would simply have said, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to hang out, and if I'm really lucky, I'm going to write some poems. (laughs) (laughs) It might not have gotten funded. I'm sure it wouldn't have gotten funded. Unfortunately, the proposal that I did write, when I went back to revisit it after I got the grant and realized, oh, I'm going to have to do this, I was pretty happy with it, and I was happy with um, the way in which I had positioned the work that I was going to do. So that was that was lucky. So I, I, I think an increasing number of people get get to go, but still, uh, overall, uh, very few of us get to go to Antarctica. What what's it like? Um, it's marvelous, and I think that you know anyone. Unfortunately, money right determines everything. Anyone with enough money can go down on a cruise, but the really unusual thing is being able to go down and actually live on the continent for a period of time. And um, I think that that experience of being down there for a little while and having a home base um, really helps you to understand how strange it is to be in a landscape that's really made of light being refracted refracted and reflected off of various kinds of highly reflective surfaces. Yeah, that's, well, it must be, must be a very interesting experience and paradise for a poet. Just paradise new, per, for a poet. new perceptions all over the place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and your perception is being challenged all the time because you know one of the one of the results of this play of light is that a mountain range, for example, that is in one place in the morning might actually appear to be in a different place in the afternoon. Um, and so the the constantly shifting nature of the landscape is a real challenge for the way in which you think about your sense of being in a place. Hmm. What did you then bring home with you in, in terms of how you how you saw Utah when you when you got home? Well, you know, one of the things that I realized while, while I was down there was that to the extent that I was prepared to see this landscape, it was the desert that had prepared me to see it because we have not the same but some similar kinds of effects with light. We get mirages and um, things appear to be farther away or closer depending on um, the weather and the light, et cetera. Uh, And so when I came back, I was just a little bit more aware. It's like, you know, you have to go away to come back and see the place where you live. I was a little bit more aware of these kinds of anomalies and shifts here than I had allowed myself really to be before. I'd like to have you uh, read a a couple more poems before we go to break here from Flight. Flight is the latest volume from Catherine Coles, who we have with us for the hour. Um, And uh, perhaps starting with 20 questions, page 52. Sure. 20 questions. Is it alive? Does it walk upright? Does it scavenge? Can it fly? Was it recently dug out of the snow, buried in debt, spotted stitching an organ to its sleeve? Does it have a favorite jukebox song, an opposite, should we turn and slowly walk away? If it were a secret, could you keep it? Aren't you afraid you might forget? If I showed it to you, would you then? Shouldn't we turn around? Is it too late? Is it bleeding? Could it be enough? Have you made excuses? Can I carry that for you? Are you sure it's not too late? 20 questions, the poet is uh, Catherine Coles. I wonder if I could have you now read, it's just a few poems later, The Body is No Scientist, page 59. (laughs) Sure. Um, This is uh, in numbered sentences, and I'm going to go ahead and read the numbers. Uh, it's dedicated to Don Sher, who was a colleague of mine at the Poetry Foundation, currently the editor of Poetry Magazine, and it arose out of a conversation that we had about his ailing father, in which I spoke the sentence that is the title, The Body is No Scientist. And 
he looked at me and uh, I knew what he was thinking. And so I said, um, listen, we can both take it as a title and we can both write poems and then come back and see what we've done. The body is no scientist. One, it wants to live or die without regard to medical evidence. Two, it takes its elixir or spits it out, craves touch and shies away. Three, it won't examine reasons. Four, it loves the slick of butter on its tongue, will suck the marrow in until it pukes, stretches its skin out at noon and stares at the sun until its sight blazes into dark. Five, didn't it fall in love with the boy packing his fingers around in a fist? Six, didn't it lick its wounds into raw meat, then forget? Seven, my body runs itself to euphoria and beyond, will run until its knees fray and buckle and its muscles feed on themselves. Eight, the clock ticks as if the body attended. Nine, oh, it's petulant and spoiled and full of joy, a dumb, petted animal going gray. Ten. Even drifting away from itself, lovely, it's no philosopher. Eleven. It never could count. <laughs> the Body is No Scientist. The poet is uh, Catherine Coles. This is her latest uh, volume of poetry called Flight. This is from a point of view of outside the body, or, you know, I guess the the mind thinking about the body. Yeah. Um, and thinking about the ways in which the body uh, is not necessarily rational. Um, the body wants what it wants, <laughs> um, you know, as the first line says, without regard to medical evidence. So um, the body might might want to live even when it's been told it's going to die. It also might want to die, you know, even when it's told that there's an opportunity to live, and that was um, what we were talking about. Don and I, um, his father—he was frustrated with his father because he thought his father had given up too early. Oh, interesting. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Now, uh, I, I know people who, and I've been—I think you know—sort of tempted to do this, and parts of my life have done this. Have lived more in the mind. You know, haven't mm -hmm. haven't been as embodied as. I don't want to say as I should be because I don't know, you know, I don't know what the should is, but yeah. but uh, what do you advocate for? Um, what I'm trying to do is is do both, um, and partly for me, that's about understanding. Um, and it's easy to forget this, right? When we live in our heads, uh, as as people who live in the word uh, in words do, and that would be, I think, both you and I. It's hard to remember because we, our experience feels different often, that the mind is the body. And this is what um, I'm after, I think, in my poetry, is the thing I call passionate thinking um, or uh, the enactment of the embodied mind. Mm -hmm. so, so no separation, the mind is the body. I believe that, the, you know, and, and neuroscience seems to tell us the mind is, is the body it arises it's not just something um that uh, comes out of the brain as it sits in your head uh it comes out of all of our senses and the thing i think that maybe the reason that we experience it so differently is that we have this relationship with time right so that um we, our mind at any given moment comprises not only the bodily experiences we're having right now but um, also all of the bodily experiences that we've ever had and the ones that we can imagine for ourselves. Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, our final segment with Catherine Coles, former Utah Poet Laureate, current University of Utah English professor. Her latest volume of poetry is called Flight. When we come back, I want to talk about this interesting uh, work Catherine Coles is doing with computer scientists uh, studying poetry from that very interesting uh, vantage point gets us into what is poetry. Uh, I've been reading an interesting article 
uh, Catherine Coles wrote about this project, in which she says, uh, she quotes Wordsworth, a poem is a spontaneous overflow of powerful emotion recalled in tranquility. We'll talk more about that following the break. Governor Gary Herbert and the Utah Division of Arts and Museums recently announced the recipients of the 2016 Governor's Leadership in the Arts Awards. Dr. Craig Jessup, Dean of the Kane College of the Arts at Utah State University, is one of the recipients to receive the honor. Dr. Jessup is recognized for his individual leadership. Governor Herbert says this year's recipients play an important role in highlighting the cultural magnificence of Utah, providing valuable educational opportunities, and boosting the economy of the state. Utah Public Radio congratulates Dean Craig Jessup and fellow recipients, teacher, artist, and researcher James Reese, Utah Arts Festival, and the Zion Canyon Arts and Humanities Council. Kudos from Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting Taiko Project, blending traditional forms with an American-style approach of Taiko, Japanese drum. Tuesday, April 26th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cashearts.org or 435-752-0026. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have with us for the hour Catherine Coles, former Utah Poet Laureate, current professor of English at University of Utah. She's author of several volumes of poetry, two novels, the latest volume of poetry is titled Flight. We've been hearing uh, poems from uh, that volume. I want to get into talking uh, about this very interesting project Catherine Coles is uh, involved with, working with computer scientists uh, to uh, to see how poems operate. And it's something called the Poemage Computer Program. Uh, um, and I've been reading an interesting article in uh, Western Humanities Review where you talk about this, uh, and as I could have imagined going in, you said the, uh, the you had some skepticism uh, <laughs> g- going into this this project. The fear was you would limit yourself to what the tools could do, for one right. thing. Right. Uh, and then I guess an uh, interesting experience of explaining to computer scientists how poems operate, and what, what, what it is you care about in them. Yes, and it's required me to think in a way about poetry and the way the ways in which poetry operates that I, I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, that wonderful, famous quote from Wordsworth about poetry being, uh, what, an um, overflow of spontaneous emotion, powerful emotion recollected in tranquility is, you know, it's that kind of statement that poets love to make. It's kind of grand. But it's really hard to tell what it means in terms of uh how a poem is actually made. It doesn't, it doesn't really say anything. Um, certainly it doesn't say anything that a computer scientist would use. And early in the project, um, I did resist doing it because I thought it was going to make me count things in poems. And I, don't, I just don't care about counting stuff at all. And so at first I declined the the invitation and was finally persuaded. But there was the moment uh, really early on in the project when a computer scientist stopped me as I was waxing very Wordsworthian about time and poetry and uh, how it works. And he, he said, so tell me, what is it? exactly that you mean when you talk about time and poetry. And I realized when I heard that word exactly that he actually meant exactly what did I mean when I talked about time (laughs) and poetry. And that was really the beginning of um, the productive work that we did together because the poet and I, uh, Julie Gonnering Lane, who was my, um, who is my postdoctoral student, we um, then had to start thinking about how is time kept in poems? Um, and this is something that that does rely on counting, but relies on a really, really complicated kind of counting, complicated enough to interest us. We're not just counting nouns. We're honoring the ways in which poems work back and forth across time, uh, and also um, precise enough to be able to interest the computer scientists and give them uh, a problem to work on that will allow uh, them not to make us use the available tools, but will allow them actually to make special tools that will answer the questions that we have about poetry. So it it can help you? uh, So that it could help. Yeah, and the rule from the very beginning was that it has to help both 
teams. Um, and in fact, uh, for the Palmage tool, the brilliant young graduate student um, Nina McCarty in computer science actually solved an open problem in computer science in order to trace the kinds of sonic relationships that that Julie and I were asking them to, to let us trace. So, uh, but it still seems very paradoxical. It's still, you know, I see there still be some skepticism about <laughs> this because, um, you know, poetry, for want of a better word, is poetry. It's you know, it's <laughs> and, yep. and how can you quantify that? That's you know, the, you're you're talking about qualities, not quantities, aren't you? Um, yes, poetry. yes, we're talking about qualities, not quantities, and you know, one of the answers to that question, and in fact, the the People I know were incredibly skeptical um, when we were very first working on this and seem to be now kind of excited about what we've managed to come up with. And the reason is that um, one of the special qualities of our tool is that we required that it not replace the the reader's interaction with a poem. Um, rather, the goal of the tool, instead of answering questions, um, is to open a questioning space and to allow the reader, uh, uh, armed with what information the tool has given, to go back to the poem and say new things about the poem that actually have nothing to do with quantification, even though it's quantification that opened the space for those kinds of questions to occur. One of the quotes from this article, uh, you say, the paradox at the heart of poetic language is that it deploys maximum precision in service of maximum complexity. Right. Which I think that's, that's a, the very de- good definition of, of what's going on with, with poems. Um, how does this, working on this program, help, help you with, with that? Um, well, one of the things that it does is, uh, you know, we're we're trying to um, visualize sonic relationships in poems. And one of the questions that we would have had from the very beginning is, well, what new things are we, we going to learn um, when we're able to see how sound is operating in a poem at, at a glance um, instead of tracking it through ourselves? And one of my favorite examples of what can be learned comes from uh, an experience Julie had with, when she put William Carlos Williams' poem, This Is Just to Say, um, through the program. And uh, this is a poem that um, it's the, this is just to say that I have eaten the plums that you left in the icebox and that you were probably saving for supper. Forgive me. They were delicious. Um, so sweet and so cold. Um, and I'm sorry not to have that right at the tip of my brain, but I think that's that's pretty darn close. And, you know, one of the things that we know that's operating behind that poem is that he had a really complicated relationship with his wife and often a difficult one, and it involved infidelity on his part, et cetera, et cetera. So this note, um, there's, a, there's a lot of force uh, of the relationship in this note of um, apology that he's leaving on the fridge for her. When Julie put um, this poem through the tool and marked, she wanted to see all the sonic relationships all at once, which is something we call the beautiful mess, and it's really fun and wonderful. And what she noticed noticed immediately was that there was only one word in the whole poem that had no sonic relationship with any other word, and that was the word you, which occurred right in the middle of the poem and only once. And this, it was one of those moments of, aha, whether Williams knew or not that he was isolating that word from everything else in the poem, that the fact that that word is isolated from everything else in the poem gives us just another little layer of meaning to think about in relation to what's going on thematically already in that poem. Yeah, it's very interesting work. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have a couple minutes left to have you read another poem, or, or perhaps two if we have time. Uh, certainly want to fit this in. It's called Passage. It's from page 76. 76. Passage. Afternoon, fall, so late my shadow crosses frost-ruined beds, scales the fence, jackknifes over into the neighbor's yard going on as far as I can see forever. I recall this day began in sunlight, coffee brewing, 
promise of warmth. I passed under my own bare trees to get the news. Overhead, birds holding long flight off as late as they might opened their bodies one more time to let the song pass through. Beautiful. That's a poem called Passage, Catherine Coles, from her latest volume, Flight. Some uh, elegiac um, mood there. Uh, you know, like I've seen impermanence. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful, but, but uh, taken from from one day, from an everyday event. Events. Going out to get the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Catherine Cole's uh, latest volume of poetry is called Flight. She's former Utah poet laureate, current professor of English at University of Utah, and has joined us from the KUR studios in Salt Lake City. Catherine Cole, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about three nurses who traveled from Utah to Europe to serve in World War I. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. As World War I intensified in Europe, so did the need for medical help. The Red Cross established base hospitals and field units throughout Europe and launched a major recruitment campaign for medical staff. As the United States entered the fray in 1917, the War Department aimed to enlist 25,000 nurses. There were 450 trained nurses in Utah that year, and 80 of them volunteered to leave for Europe to serve the war effort. One of these women was Myrtle Butler of Sanderville, Utah. She graduated from the LDS Hospital School of Nursing in 1917 and was working in Wyoming. When the Red Cross called for nurses, Myrtle signed up and was eventually assigned to a hospital in France. In December of 1918, she wrote, Oh, what a joy it is to be of some service to those noble boys of Uncle Sam's. Maud Fitch of Eureka, Utah, was an ambulance driver in France. In her letters home, Maud describes driving through completely dark roads packed with advancing troops, coming upon towns that were destroyed by bombshells, and bribing traffic directors with cigarettes in order to get her ambulance through. Mabel Bedellion was assigned to Evacuation Hospital No. 1 and recounts that in one night alone, more than 800 wounded American soldiers were brought in. Due to the shortage of nurses, she was given the responsibility to care for 136 of them. Many of the other nurses prized souvenirs from the German patients, but Mabel wrote that, Seeing our men wounded and dying is all I want to remember. I feel now as though I wouldn't give the smallest place in my trunk for anything off a prisoner. Myrtle, Maud, and Mabel journeyed to Europe to fulfill their duty as nurses and brought home unique experiences that advanced the nursing profession. Moreover, their service demonstrates the importance of women's contributions during World War I. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Tak. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.